Our reading this morning is taken from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Amen. During the uh, announcements, I wanted to just have a special mention and welcome Ian and Shari, who are back today. Uh, they're, they're, wanted to give them a very warm welcome. Come on, yes, absolutely. Uh, this is their first time with us this morning as husband and wife. So congratulations and welcome. It's wonderful to have you back. It's great. Well, wonderful. Well, folks, we are kind of in between series at the moment. Uh, we started the year by looking at our vision series, and we, we kind of finished that off last Sunday, and we had Jesus the Game Changer series. And as I mentioned, in term two, we'll be looking at First Peter. So we're in a little bit of uh, no man's land. And uh, well, generally, as a pastor during this time, you think, well, what am I going to preach? You kind of got an open book. And that's really difficult because there's so much to preach on in the Bible, isn't there? So you narrow it down and think, well, the Psalms. Okay, that's, that's great, that's helpful, but there are 150 psalms, so how do you pick one? Um, so the logic behind Psalm 32, which is just a beautiful psalm, um, as they all are, but the logic behind the selection of Psalm 32 is that two weeks ago, on Easter Sunday, we spoke about forgiveness. And folks, Psalm 32 is just a, a tremendous psalm that, I guess, contrasts the, the crushing burden and weight of unconfessed sin uh, with the release and freedom that comes from forgiveness once sin has been confessed to God. And so I trust that as we just journey through Psalm 32, it will be a blessing to all of us here this morning. So just a little bit about the author and, and content. Not all the Psalms are written by David, many of them are, and this is one that was. Um, both Psalm 50 or 32 and 51 uh, are considered to be related to David's sin um, that's accounted in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, uh, where David has uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba, um, and there's deception and there's murder with Uriah's husband. Um, and so uh, both Psalm 51 is sort of considered to be, you know, in a sense, David's immediate um, prayer of repentance uh, once he's confronted with the prophet Nathan about 12 months after the event took place. And then Psalm 32 is considered to be a reflection a little later down the track where David's actually 
looking back at that experience and the sense of um, guilt and remorse and shame that he felt during the period where he had not yet confessed his sin before God, and then his experience of receiving the forgiveness of God after the confession. Uh, This is called a penitential psalm. Uh, There are seven of these psalms of the 150, and it means repentance. It's a psalm that is all about repentance. Um, And the essence of the psalm is that God responds to confession and repentance with total unrestrained forgiveness and mercy. Total unrestrained forgiveness and mercy. We don't have to second-guess God when we come to Him in a spirit uh, with a contrite heart. Uh, Paul quotes this psalm, the first two verses, Uh, in Romans 4, 7 to 8. And in that passage of Scripture, Paul is talking about Abraham, and he is specifically talking about the fact that Abraham was considered righteous, not because of his good works, but because he believed in God. Because he believed in God, it was credited to him as righteous. And the point that Paul there is making is that forgiveness and righteousness in Christ or in God does not come from our good works. It does not come from being good people. It comes from our faith and our belief in Christ. So let's walk together through Psalm 32. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Uh, The interesting thing with this psalm is the first thing that it does, blessed is the one. That is the first line of the Psalter, of the, the book of Psalms. Blessed is the one. So Psalm 1 starts with that exact same line. So when, whenever we read, blessed is the one, the reader is taken right back to Psalm number 1. Now, interestingly, Psalm number 1 is talking about an obedient, righteous person, a person who hasn't sinned and disobeyed God. They're blessed because they've chosen not to follow the ways of the wicked. In Psalm 32, however, this person has chosen the way of the wicked. They have sinned, they have rebelled against God, and yet they are still blessed. Why? Because they have received the forgiveness of God. God does not, you know, whether we are obedient or disobedient to God, the reality is that through our life we're going to be both at times, aren't we? It's our heart response to Him in the midst of all of that that matters. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And this causes us, or this causes me particularly, to come back to thinking about what is true blessing? What is true blessing? Because the psalmist says, your sins are forgiven, you are blessed. Often, and I think particularly in our Western culture, it's easy for us to assimilate Uh, material wealth and prosperity and good health with blessing. But that's not what the Scriptures teach. Now, there's nothing wrong with with being grateful for these things that, that may or may not be part of our lives. But true blessing in the Scriptures is very different to what many might consider true blessing to be. To have your sins forgiven, 
to, be, to have a clean and clear conscience before God. Now that is what it is to be blessed. Uh, this is a beatitude. And the beatitudes are, are, are kind of this upside down way of thinking of blessing. And so it's, it's helpful for us to remember that the blessings of God are so different to what we might think the blessings are, particularly what, what people might go, wow, God's really blessed you. But I really want to encourage all of us to be so thoughtful about how we choose to use the word blessing and blessed. We often assume and, 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 and assimilate so many of the good things that we enjoy in Western culture with God's blessing. Really, is that God's blessing? Well, the Scriptures have a different story to tell. The thing that I love about this is that it's, a, it's, an equal living, it's an equal playing field. It doesn't matter where you live or what your external circumstances are, whether you're someone who has great prosperity and wealth or whether you're someone who lives in complete dire poverty, you can still be blessed. And whether you're this person or that person, you, you stand before God as a sinner. We all stand before God as those who will live perhaps at times obedient and disobedient lives. When our trust is in Christ, we can be blessed because we have been forgiven. Now, what is really interesting is, and I'm sure many of you would would probably say, that over your time, whether it's been through books or or newspaper articles or personal testimonies, there are so many people who have had it all, have had all the material wealth, all the prosperity, all the status, everything. And yet they're still miserable. And they would be the first to say, I am not blessed. I still have an emptiness inside. And so I think as believers, we have such a wonderful opportunity to reframe true blessing. Now, the word blessing in Hebrew is esha. And it means happy. It means happy. Happy is the one. In fact, the, the King James Version says happy is the one happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and what a wonderful thought for us that deep sense of contentment and happiness that can come from knowing that we have a clear conscience before our god true blessing it it it's a, it gives us pause to think about true blessing when we look at the psalms there's a bit of a as we look at verses 1 and 2 there's a progression So repentance leads to forgiveness. Repentance leads to forgiveness. Repentance is the first, I guess, move in the motion. And you have to go and read 2 Samuel 11 to to see David's repentance when David confronts him and he acknowledges his sin. Uh, But repentance is the first move and then from repentance comes forgiveness. And then once a person has received the forgiveness of God, the transformation begins to take place. And you only have to look at verse 2. So blessed is the one in whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. In whose spirit is no deceit. That's the transformation that has taken place. Before David had repented, there was deceit in his heart. He was not coming honest and real before God. There was deception But once David had received the forgiveness of God, transformation had come about and there is no longer any 
deceit. And you will see that because in verse 3 to 5, he basically tells the story. He gives personal testimony to what happened. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Powerful word pictures, aren't they? Powerful images. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's some interesting things here. See verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are are covered. Just note that word covered. And then we come back. Then I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. You see, David had been covering up his iniquity. And then God, he, he, he confesses, he repents. And then God comes and, and does the real cover-up. So, friends, allow God to cover up your sin. You don't need to cover it up yourself. When you try and cover up and have that deceptive spirit, look at the outcome. My bones wasted away. It was a feeling of being crushed. It's a feeling of being um, parched, dehydrated. This is, this is depression. This is black, dark despair that the psalmist is experiencing. And David is not just speaking about something hypothetical here. And this is, I think, why the psalms are so magnificent and why so many believers through the centuries have found so much comfort and guidance through the psalms because they offer real-life experience. They, they give us a voice for the real-life stuff. Now, another thing that we see um, in verses 3 to 5 is this contrast of silence and speaking. The silence is connected with all of that suffering of being crushed and dehydrated. But then once David speaks, when he confesses, when he prays, there's an escape, there's a release. And you can see there in my notes, in verse 3 and 4, when he was in that place of silence, it was... It was Day and night, it was all-consuming. But then the result and the release that comes from speaking uh, is amazing because the cover-up has stopped. Now, when we think about those images of being... Of, of the, like the, the feeling of the heaviness of God's hand upon you, because you're being deceptive and you're not being honest and you're not being remorseful for your transgressions. And we think about living day and night in despair and darkness and depression. And then we think about the joy and the relief and the release that comes from confessing and just being out with it and just being honest, just putting it on the table. This is what I've done or this is you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed this is, this is what's happened. We think about the difference between those two things. Why is it so hard to confess sin? 
Like, it seems to me that the result of unconfessed sin is so unappealing. Uh, Where on the other hand, to, to just get it out there, to get it off your chest, to just be honest, it just seems so much better. We're talking about darkness and light here. I think here are a couple of, or a few reasons why I think it's hard to confess sin. I think sometimes we, we're in a sense of denial. We, we don't really believe that we've done the wrong thing. And we'll tend to do what we see Adam and Eve modeling right back in the garden, and that's the blame game. You see, Adam blames Eve, and then Eve blames the serpent, and so it goes on. And when it comes to sin, it's so easy for us to try and find blame and to blame another person. And it doesn't mean that other people haven't impacted us, but there does come a point where we have to just take some personal responsibility and stop trying to justify our actions, our behaviours, our words, our choices. Um, justification, of course, I mentioned there. there. There might be all kinds of reasons that we can justify to ourselves why it was okay for me to do this or to think this or to say this. Um, this is the context I find myself in. That, you know... I'll let you think about what that might mean. Um, Maybe for some of us, we're in difficult workplaces. We have a different persona in the workplace to what we do at home or or in the church. We might say, I don't really live a very Christian life in that context. We're trying to justify our behaviour. But we're called to be people of integrity, just to be the one person, just to be the one person wherever you are. And... Sure, we'll get that wrong. We'll stuff up. But that's, that's where forgiveness comes in. You know, pride is a massive one, I think. It's just all part of this sense of not wanting to lower ourselves. We don't like to lower ourselves. I think this is really the core of the heart that I've come to, is that to confess is to actually lower yourself to lower yourself before God. It's to lower yourself perhaps before another person because part of your repentance may require you to actually go and lower yourself before another person. Now, what's happening in that moment? When you lower yourself before God, and let's just keep it about God in this moment. When you lower yourself before God, He, as your judge, has every right to judge you to condemn you, uh, to say, well, I told you so. I've made it very clear that this is not the way that you should behave or this is the way that you should speak. And so in a sense, when we lower ourselves before God, we place ourselves in a vulnerable position. And this is the same with, with, with other people. When we lower ourselves to someone, when we actually come in a spirit of confession And we'd say to someone, I'm sorry I was wrong. For a moment there, we're in a very vulnerable position because we don't know how they're going to respond. 
they might make us feel even lower. And, and with people that can happen, and sadly sometimes it does. But never with God. Never with God. If you lower yourself and humble yourself before God, He will never condemn you. He will never say, I told you so. He will never say, it's not good enough. When you lower yourself before God, His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness is like an instant download. It's immediate. It's not like snail mail. It's going to take days, maybe weeks. I sent a letter to Newcastle over two weeks ago. It still hasn't arrived. Isn't that crazy? It's for the car. It's a notice of disposal. Um, Thankfully, I had another copy. But, you know, God's forgiveness is not like that. It's instantaneous. That's what we see in the Psalms. It's just a sense of this release. Now, that sense of release would have been experienced either way. We see from um, 2 Samuel that there's been about a year that's taken place between the, um, the actual act and then the confession. Now, that's a long time of covering up and, and deception. And I'm sure that, you know, we spin these stories, justification, pride, I don't want to admit. And the longer we leave it, the more we kind of, that's the narrative that we continue to build upon, isn't it? I was right. You know, and we, we, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But whether we admit here or over here, it, the, the instant download of forgiveness is the same. It's not like God says, well, it took you a year to say you were sorry, to be honest and real before me, so now you're going to have to wait. No, God's forgiveness is immediate. It's in His nature. It's in His character. God wants to forgive. He wants to heal He wants to bring wholeness. He wants his children living free of burdens and fear and depression. Six and seven. Therefore, so David having now given his own personal testimony of this is what it was like before repentance and this is what it was like after repentance, he now... um, kind of wants to exhort and encourage the whole worshipping community to take part, to follow this lead. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The Psalms are full of such wonderful imagery And we see here the imagery of the the rising waters. And again, there's an image there of the longer you go with unconfessed sin and deceit in your life, it's as if the water just continues to rise and it overtakes you. Uh, That is in contrast to the sense of relief and flow that comes from repentance and confession. And, and here is a picture of a person who's just about to step into the ocean. And we all know what this feeling is like, <laughs> especially when it's just that little bit cold, as it often is. 
And there's that hesitancy, isn't there? You know, it, it's like, I know I want to go in. I know I want to experience the refreshing waters, but it's cold. And so we, 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 we go in very hesitantly. And that's what this image is like. And that's what David was like. It obviously took him a long period of time to, to eventually submerge himself in the water. And you think about that. Yeah, it's a little, but it takes, takes a little bit. But isn't it amazing once you're actually in the water? Oh, it's so refreshing. And to me, that just speaks of the refreshing nature of God's forgiveness and blessing. When we actually just let the guard down, be prepared to humble ourselves, lower ourselves, and then just allow the waves of God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's grace to cover us and refresh and renew us. And it's interesting, isn't it? Coming out of that water, it's like, it's like feeling like a new person with that invigorating, beautiful, cleansing water. That's sort of the image that David's speaking of. And now, no longer is David wanting to hide from God. God is now David's hiding place. He doesn't want to cover up from God. Now that he's uncovered and God now covers up his sin, God is now his hiding places. As David says in Psalm um, 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. When David confesses, he does not find uh, a dictating angry father. What he finds is the running father who wants to throw his arms around his son and say, welcome home. Let me put a ring on your finger. Let me put a robe on your back. Let me kiss you and throw a party because you have returned. This is what you will find when you can prepare yourself just to come and humble yourself and lower yourself before God. This is what you will find. And that parent then appears in verse 8 because it's as if Yahweh himself now speaks to David. I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Beautiful. You see the movement in the psalm? David has confessed, he's repented. And we would all know that the simple act of repentance and confession doesn't automatically mean that we're not going to slip up again and sin again. We will. But if we've actually humbled ourselves under the hand of God, God is then saying, remember that transformation that takes place. There's no longer any deceit. There's a desire, an inner desire to want to please God and live for Him and in His ways. And then in verse 8, it's like Yahweh is speaking. He's saying, you're not alone. I will instruct you. I will guide you. I mean, this is, is this not foreshadowing of the sending of the Holy Spirit? Surely I am with you till the very end of the age. It's beautiful. It's so wonderful. We're not alone. God is with us. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. It's not a judgmental, overbearing, dogmatic eye. 
It's a loving eye of a beautiful parent who loves their son or daughter and wants them to grow in light, not in darkness. David then sort of switches back into teaching mode, if you like. Remember that the Psalms were written for the gathered people of God. They were spoken aloud. They were sung. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. So again, another image here of an unruly animal that must be brought under control by an external measure. In a sense, David is saying, for those who trust in God, um, God will lead and guide them. God will lead and guide them. They won't need to, to be controlled by a bit or a bridle because they'll have that inner conscience that God will lead and guide them. And then the psalm, as many do, finish with a call to praise, a call to rejoice in this sovereign, forgiving, gracious God. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. You know, when you go through the movement of this psalm, how can we not but offer up praise and thanksgiving to the one? Now, we are so fortunate men and women of God, brothers and sisters, because we can read this psalm through the lens of Christ, can't we? I mean, I mentioned about the Holy Spirit being foreshadowed, but of course the cross of Christ is so powerfully foreshadowed in this psalm as well. And here's what the Apostle Paul has to say. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful promise. Christ became sin for us to atone for all of our sin. There is nothing that you can hide from God that he can't forgive. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're all in this boat, folks. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Beautiful. Now, the Psalms are songs. And uh, I really like the Sons of Korah. They're a contemporary Christian band who have set about to put all the psalms over time to music. Sometimes just hearing a psalm sung can bring it to life. And I'd invite us now, as we reflect on Psalm 32, to listen to the Sons of Korah interpretation of Psalm 32. Thanks, Dave.
Would you join me in prayer? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Almighty God, merciful and compassionate Father, we humble ourselves before your holy throne of grace and seek your face. Thank you that we have a high priest who is able to empathize with our weaknesses and was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. We come before you, therefore, in the confidence of Christ Jesus' perfect, spotless righteousness, knowing that as we lower ourselves and empty ourselves of denial, justification, and pride, confessing our sins to you, we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. All praise and glory be to your most holy name. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.